This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. Hey folks, thanks for turning in to episode 18 of the pod course, First Bite Fed, Fun, and Functional. I'm hoping that we have um, piqued your curiosity and that you want to know the difference between a pod course and a podcast. So we decided that this is the perfect episode to share the difference. So stay tuned after the podcast to preview the pod course portion where we do live Q&A with each individual subject matter expert. And this time it's the infamous Dr. Greg Black Allergist Guru uh, here in Columbia, South Carolina. So sit back, relax, enjoy, and remember that this can count as a continuing ed if you transition over to a pod course. So enjoy. folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional. I'm your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast was, like most creative processes, birthed from a combination of several cups of coffees and, honestly, even more questions posed by a series of impassioned graduate students that I've had the pleasure of supervising over the last several years. First Bite's mission to answer those questions that we've all had, but we've either been too afraid to ask or we didn't have the subject matter expert saved to our own personal speed dials. So, do you too have more questions and answers when it comes to treating your medically complex and fragile pediatric patients? Are you unsure if the signs and symptoms that you're observing are indicative of an allergy, maybe an underlying GI issues, or could they possibly be neurologically driven? How many questions do you really have for that registered dietitian regarding the formulas prescribed and the flow rate through that patient's G-tube? Have you ever been consulted for a quote-unquote difficult latch only to find out that the mother is exclusively breastfeeding, but you've never nursed a little one or worked with the breastfed patient before? And what about functional communication? Are you so over flashcards, but you need advice on how to get started with core vocabulary with a non-speech generating device? or how to find the right fit for a speech-generating device? Do you have additional worries about the basic day-to-day running and documentation of your private practice? How do you go about obtaining referrals or even documenting that note so that the insurance company deems it medically necessary? If you answered yes, well, then come join me, Michelle Dawson, for this dynamic podcast presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Who am I, you ask? Well, I'm a self-described SLP geek with, as my family says, a touch of the ADD and ADHD. I have a passion for serving the least of these, namely the most complex and involved pediatric patients in their natural environment through my private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in the Columbia, South Carolina metro area. I also have had the pleasure, and currently still am, traveling the country where I lecture on best practices for pediatric dysphagia and functional language acquisition delivered through an early intervention natural environment model. Are you still intrigued? Then come join me as I interview some amazing folks. And don't forget that you can submit questions for a Q&A or interview request topics to me via email at firstbite at speechtherapypd.com or on our Facebook page. And also check out our website, drop a review, subscribe to obtain those coveted ASHA CEUs. All right, folks, let's get right to it. Welcome back to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I'm your host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. The topic of today, again, falls in both the functional and fed category, with the emphasis today on addressing milk and soy allergies. 
which I think we can all agree is pretty critical for figuring out for our medically complex and fragile pediatric patients. On that note, I am excited to have back to First Bite the um, South Carolina Allergy and Immunology Society President, Dr. Greg Black. Uh, for those of you that haven't heard, um, I met this dear friend a few years ago when our little ones shared a classroom at our preschool together. And I will totally admit to stalking him in the church parking lot to pick his brains and um, beg him to give us lectures for Skisha, the South Carolina Speech Hearing Association. And uh, he was gracious enough to do that this past February to all my uh, fellow geeky peds, SLPs. Um, but in any case, that persistence paid off and he had a thunderous applause. And I, I, I kept politely begging, nagging, however you want to look at it, um, and asking him to share his gifts and insights on a larger scale through this podcast. There's a lot of us clinicians out there clamoring for information on milk and soy testing and the presence or absence of milk and soy allergy for the pediatric patients that we're treating. And so, um, as he said, once the yellow plague of pollen had lifted in South Carolina, he agreed, and here we are. So, Greg, take it away. Tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into the nitty-gritty of dairy and soy allergens. Okay, yeah, thank you for that introduction. So, uh, I started uh, MUSC in 2001 and finished there in 2005 with my medical degree. Uh, from there, I did my residency in internal medicine and pediatrics. So uh, I have experience with adult medicine and children. Uh, and I, that was a four-year program. So I, I finished there in 2009. Uh, my wife and I moved overseas for a year where we lived in New Zealand. And I, uh, so I engaged in internal medicine for an underserved population for the Maori in the northern part of New Zealand. Uh, but that was for adults and not really for children. And after a year of that, we came back and I did my allergy and immunology fellowship at Tulane in New Orleans. And from there, I, I graduated from that, passed my allergy boards and started uh, at the private practice, Carolina Allergy and Asthma Consultants here in Columbia. And I am uh, not only a private practitioner, but I'm also an associate clinical professor of pediatrics at the South Carolina School of Medicine. So I frequently consult at the Children's Hospital and the pediatric residents uh, do their allergy rotations at our office so they can learn about allergy immunology. Uh, predominantly at our office, we treat uh, atopic dermatitis, allergic eczema, food allergies, uh, all forms of anaphylaxis, whether it's venom, drug, or food-induced asthma, chronic nasal and sinus allergies, eye allergies, uh, uh, chronic urticaria, and other things, but those are certainly uh, the highlights. Um, and we predominantly get most of our referrals from family doctors, pediatricians, internists, uh, but certainly other uh, specialists, specifically uh, pulmonologists and GI doctors who want to know if uh, the process that a patient is having with their GI tract or with their respiratory tract is more allergic or less allergic in nature, which is where the skin testing comes in. Um, but yes. I think the first thing that we need to talk about with milk allergy is that breastfeeding is so important. And I, and I really don't think that I have to lecture anybody about the nutritional, the immunological, the, the, the healthy bones, the, the healthy brains, all those things that can come from breastfeeding. So uh, as, far as, um, as far as those things go, we know that breastfeeding... Um, can delay the onset of eczema. We know that breastfeeding can protect against infections. We know that breastfeeding promotes um, healthy growth of infants and, and, and all those things. I think what happens after that is in children that have problems with cow milk protein formula or, or children that are having problems tolerating cow milk that may be detected by them through mom's diet and how that goes into soy allergy, soy intolerance, things of that nature. Now, milk allergy, it can be anywhere, depending on what country you're talking about, it can be anywhere between 3.4% prevalence, uh, almost up to 5% prevalence, something like 4.8, 4.9%. Soy allergy is something more like 1.1% prevalence. Um, 
what the major allergens in, in, in cow milk are casein, alpha, lactalbumin, and beta, lactalglobulin. Uh, those are all proteins that um, when they're taken into the gut, um, they're quickly broken down by gastric acid um, and they're, they're partially broken down and taken in through the uh, mucosal lining of the gut to, to uh, fund the baby's nutrition, so to speak. The thing about that is that those last two that I mentioned, um, lactalbumin and beta-lactoglobulin, those are very heat sensitive and very digestion sensitive. So they go away very quickly with any baking process and they go away very quickly with uh, gastric acid digestion. The casein is very heat stable, very digestion stable. So for instance, if you're allergic to that casein part of uh, the milk protein, then you basically are at risk to react to any form of milk ingestion. That means that if you're casein allergic, you can't eat a goldfish cracker without having hives, you can't, or having eczema or something like that. Because that goldfish cracker with the milk protein and the cheese that was baked in a little oven. And but so those first two that I mentioned, those are destroyed. Those are in stuff like cheese, cheese, ice cream, regular cow milk. But once it spends time in the oven or once it spends a little bit of time in baby's stomach, that with the gastric acid, your lactalbumin and your beta-lactalglobulin, those things go away very quickly. But the casein, that's in all forms of milk and dairy. Um, if we document that you're allergic to casein, then it's, it's very important for the baby to avoid all forms of milk and dairy. Um, the, the other thing about this, too, is that we, have, we find ourselves in a little bit of a schism with the milk and soy thing. Um, Milk-induced anaphylaxis can be very severe. It's, uh, it's fairly common. Uh, but soy-induced anaphylaxis is very uncommon, and death from soy allergy is, is not particularly common. Now, while, while peanut, while peanut kind of predominates for all the severe presentations of food allergy and most certainly a great number of the fatalities, milk does hold a certain percentage there, but soy is like way over here. Well under 1% of people have severe anaphylaxis to soy, and there's very little deaths ever been documented for it. Which, which is good. However, what we have in those instances is that if you have a baby that has immediate sensitivity to cow milk protein, so they're getting cow milk protein through their formula or they're eating cheese or they're having ice cream under a year of age and they break out in hives and they start vomiting and their right eye swell shuts, you have to go to the ER. You treat that baby for cow milk induced anaphylaxis. Um, if you have to switch their formula, 90% of the time, um, switching them to a hydrosylate, uh, an extensively hydrosylated formula. 90% of the time, you'll be successful. But that is important to know that one out of every 10 kids in that situation is also going to react to nutramogen, is also going to react to alimentum. They're so sensitive that they pick up a little bit of that cow milk protein, even in those um, uh, extensively broken down formulas. So if you had a life-threatening anaphylactic reaction to cow milk, knowing that there's a 10% chance that that could happen again on Nutramagen, knowing that that's a 10% chance that that could happen on Alimentum, that may spur you on to make the more conservative choice and try something like Neocate right after that for the child's nutritional needs. Now, I think if the child ended up in the ER or the ICU because of cow milk-induced um, anaphylaxis, it would be hard for me to suggest that they absolutely would be safe. Uh, on on your extensively hydrosylated formulas like Nutramagen and Alimentum. Okay. How often do you actually have to prescribe an EpiPen for kids? I prescribe, I prescribe EpiPens several times a day, several times a week. Even from, well, <laughs> I mean, I'd hope so. You're the allergist. But like, I mean, for like a child with a milk allergy, how how common uh, is it that you have um, to prescribe EpiPens for that? A, a few times a month. But, you know, it's, it's um, you know, I'm, I'm one of four allergists in our practice. So, um, so milk is, you know, for instance, going back to what I was saying before, peanut, it causes hives, swelling, anaphylaxis. Peanut usually causes 
anaphylaxis, like immediate reactivity. Mm -hmm. Milk, milk allergen is like this chameleon. And we kind of referred to that um, in one of the, in the previous podcasts, milk can be associated with eczema. Milk can be associated with allergic esophageal inflammation. Milk can be associated with colitis, chronic feeding dysfunction, poor weight gain, failure to thrive. Uh, it, it, and it can be it can be associated with anaphylaxis, hives, vomiting, wheezing. It can milk if you milk can do all those things with or without a positive skin test. If you have a positive skin test, you're more likely to have milk associated eczema. If you have a positive skin test, you're more likely to get an EpiPen. Uh, prescription because you may be at risk for the acute anaphylactic reaction. Now, if I know a child is regularly having milk and the only problem they're having is eczema, even if they have a positive skin test, I won't give them an EpiPen prescription. They don't need it. If they if they get cheese, if they drink Similac because grandma wasn't paying attention and didn't give them their right formula and she gave them Similac because she picked it up at Walmart and grandma doesn't know any better or what have you, um, but I know the child's history. I know the child is only just going to, the child is only just going to get rashing. Sorry. Which do you ever have to prescribe an EpiPen for soy allergy? Uh, very uncommonly, very uncommonly, maybe, maybe once a year. And, and, and that is, uh, that also goes back into the sacredness of food challenges, you know, because if I, if I'm really skeptical, knowing you play the numbers. Uh, soy allergy, soy-induced anaphylaxis is very uncommon. Uh, we're talking under 1% of all the food-induced anaphylaxis. So if the skin test is huge and bright and positive and the, the history is really good for anaphylaxis, I'm not going to challenge that patient. But if the soy skin test is negative or very weakly positive and maybe the blood work is not that convincing either, but their story is really good. In those instances, you're going to want to challenge the patient in the office, um, whether they're having soy protein formula, whether they're old enough to actually eat soybeans, whether they're actually old enough to eat something that has a good, healthy soy component that's baked into the, you know, like graham crackers have a lot of soy. In them. So that, that's that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Then, I, this leads me to another question. We've been talking um, this lecture and our, our last lecture, we were talking a lot about the infant formulas, but sometimes I don't get in. I get the kids that are, you know, yeah, they had difficulties latching. They had difficulties, might've tried a couple different formulas, um, but I get them when they're like 18 months and two years of age and they're like um, significant picky eaters and they've been on Pediasure, um, which um, or uh, a formula like that, and they're still having eczema. They're having a lot of constipation. Um, we can still have um, some of these presentations. Where do you see milk allergies or soy allergies when they're on the, um, for lack of a better term, like the toddler formulas? Yes. Yes. Um, I, I, a lot of it has to do with what we call barrier dysfunction. So for instance, um, a child with eczema will often have eczema onset sometime between three to six months of age, right? So they're getting yeah. barrier, they're getting barrier dysfunction out here. Uh, but many times those children that have problems uh, with, they have GI symptoms with cow milk based formulas, with soy based formulas. In those instances, if they have eczema, we think they have barrier dysfunction on the outside. We think they have barrier dysfunction on the inside. Uh, and the issue about that is that when, when they're having that barrier dysfunction, the allergic uh, immune cells are peeking out into areas where they shouldn't be peeking out into, that, that you've got this rashy skin, and if you were to go microscopically and look at that, you're having this army of allergic cells looking out at the real world through the broken skin layers, and we think that that's happening in the GI tract as well. So what's happening there is, is that their eczema is coming on early. They're not tolerating cow milk, cow milk protein formula. And the real question that we want to answer first early on is do they have a positive milk skin test? If their milk skin test is positive, in that instance, we're going to want to eliminate milk 
as much as possible. Baked milk in the child's diet, if the child is old enough to actually eat baked products, if, they're, if they've been teething for a little while and old enough to take a bite of bakery products, we want them to be milk and dairy free. Baked milk, we don't want that. Um, and we want, if they're still breastfeeding, we want mom to eliminate milk from their diet. Really because a lot of this goes into allergic memory. If they have a positive milk skin test, well, they have a clone of cells in their bone marrow and their lymph nodes that are constantly waiting for reoccurrence of milk in the system. So the more milk that they're exposed to, the more symptomatic they are, and the more that allergic clone expands. You see, they all outgrow milk and egg allergy. They all outgrow soy allergy. For the most part, they outgrow wheat allergy. But the, the, uh, a, a secret of that success is like, okay, They've got eczema, they've got diarrhea, they've got some other symptoms that aren't making sense. They got a positive milk skin test. We want the immune system to forget that. And the best way for them to forget that is to do a trial of avoidance and see how they do later on. We follow the milk skin test on, a, on an annual basis. And as the skin test goes dark, we start reintroducing different forms of milk and dairy. And we monitor the child's progress. If they're eating baked milk and they're tolerating it and they're not having eczema, they're not having diarrhea, they're not having signs of anaphylaxis, that's good. And now we start introducing unbaked versions of milk and dairy where they're having more raw allergen presentation, uh, like, uh, like the beta-lactoglobulin and the alpha-lactobumin, the, alpha the, the things that are only present in unbaked uh, versions of milk, cold milk and dairy, so to speak. Uh, and so that's how we use the skin test to help reintroduce those things because it is, you know, it is a great source of calcium, vitamin D, and nutrition. We do want to reintroduce that back into the child's diet, but only when we know they're going to tolerate it and they're not going to be symptomatic. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. So in, in my world, when I get the referrals and, um, Normally, I stand a better chance of getting a kid into, and this is pretty terrible, I stand a better chance of getting a kid into a nutritionist through WIC or the yeah. registered dietitian than I do getting them into you. Um, yeah. And I'm not just saying, you. when I say you, I mean you as in like all the allergists in the immediate yeah. area. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times the nutritionist or the RD will say, we'll just do hey, your kid's presenting with um, rounds of um, excessive spit up. They're presenting with a lot of diarrhea. We've got a touch of eczema. Um, and I love how they say like a touch of eczema. Uh, yeah, y'all folks, you couldn't see it. I'm like air quoting again. Um, they'll say, we'll just do an elimination diet. They'll say just um, for the breastfeeding mothers, remove the um, milk or, or remove the dairy from your diet, remove the soy from your diet, or they will give them cans of um, Nutramagem or cans of Almentum. Um, and then if the kid starts improving, um, they'll just circumvent the allergist altogether and say, okay, well, this is your new formula. This is your, you know, you're approved for it through WIC, you're approved for it through here. And I mean, but at the same time, then that leaves the feeding therapist that's treating the kid, that the kid is, you know, having difficulty. And it's interesting, earlier you said cheese crackers, those little goldfish crackers. Oh, yeah. I tell you how many times I've had kids that, like, the parents want them to eat the goldfish crackers or want them to eat, you know, shredded cheese or string cheese or something because the older sibling is doing that, but yet the child is on Almentum or Nutramagen. Right. Home, they're so, on so right. And so that's going to, that's going to worsen their process, whatever their process is, if they're having diarrhea, if they're having failure to thrive. Um, and, and so again, that's also where the skin test is very helpful um, because there's plenty of kids where they might have pure GI symptoms. If they have pure GI symptoms and the milk skin test is negative, keeping them on alimentum and or Nutramagen for a solid four weeks is really, really helpful, even if they're symptomatic for a certain time period. There's no, uh, there's no agreed upon trials. You got somebody who's not, you got a, a kid who's uh, not thriving, or a large group of kids who's not thriving on cow milk protein formula. And there's no agreed, and, and all those children have a negative skin test to milk. So they come into my office, and I skin test them to milk, and, and it's and it's all negative. Okay, good. You got this hundred kids, 
um, that's having pure GI symptoms, failure to thrive, uh, maybe even some reflux-like symptoms, but no hives, no eczema, no wheezing, no anaphylaxis, negative milk skin tests. There's no agreed upon um, there, there's no agreed upon uh, guidelines about how to choose the most appropriate formula because most patients in those situations will get on Nutramogen and Alimentum because of ease of access and it costs less. The problem in those situations is that the failure rate uh, for extensively hydrolyzed uh, formulas like Alimentum and Nutramogen, the failure rate is 30%. Okay, so um, the failure rate. The failure rate is that is that they'll get put on Alimentum or they'll get put on Nutramogen, and thirty percent of those patients will still have diarrhea. Thirty percent of those patients will still have failure to thrive, uh, failure to put on weight. Uh, they'll still have a lot of dyspepsia and abdominal cramping, and, and and a lot of problems even on that formula. Now, we think that goes back to the fact that. Parents in this situation are so ready to have some quality of life and so ready for the baby to not have diarrhea, not to be always developing diaper rash because you're always having to wipe their entire bottom, you know, with somewhat what sort of wipe and they're getting all rashy and the mother's upset and it's totally understandable. But I bring it up because there's been some trials where they take all these infants and they put all of them on Neocate and then after four weeks, everybody's much improved and they switch them back. Uh, they, they, they went from a regular cow milk formula all the way down to the most expensive stuff, Neocate. They did it for four weeks. Uh, there's a 90% success rate. So many of the kids are getting better. And they decided to take these kids in this one trial and put them back on Nutramogen. Well, a lot of kids ended up being great on Nutramogen. And what we've also seen is that if you try to feed through on Nutramogen, if you try to sit there and tell the parents to be patient, a lot of time, the bowels can kind of mature on Nutramogen or Alimentum. I mean, you don't always have to skip to Neocate, but but it usually it need, it need, it usually they need like four weeks. And so many people, understandably so, uh, whether it be the pediatric nurse, the nurse practitioner, the PA, the family doctor, the pediatrician, so many people are ready for the child to be healthy that after a week or two of uh, being symptomatic on Alimentum, they want Neocate. And that's understandable, but it turns out that there is some growing evidence that you need that four-week trial. Um, and if they really have been symptomatic uh, for four weeks, if they have a negative skin test of milk, and if they're symptomatic on your extensively hydrosylated formula uh, at four weeks, then yes, it's very reasonable to, at that point to try an amino acid formula like Neocate. Okay. Is, does Neocate, is there an is there a different version, or are they the only ones on the market that are an amino acid uh, I think the other one is Elicare and Gerber. Ah, that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, Gerber actually is coming out with its own version of Nutramogen and Alimentum. So that is a EHF, extensively hydrosylated formula. In fact, the Gerber, I think it's probably been out for a little while now. It's just that I don't have a lot of experience with it. Uh -huh. uh, but besides Neocate, there's Elicare, and those are the only two that I'm aware of. But Neocate, it's this... They've got prebiotics, probiotics. They've got all sorts of different flavors, especially when, especially after the age of one. They've got Neocate Splash, uh, and there's a lot of. Um, um, have you ever had Neocate Splash? I have had Neocate Splash when I was trying to do some food therapy with the kid. Let me tell you what you Neocate Splash. No, honey, it tastes bloody awful. <laughs> they, they do taste bad. Yeah. But, um, but here, the thing about that is that it's. Um, it, it besides what we're talking about in this podcast, it has so much applicability with EOE. So yeah. kids, kids with um, you know five year olds, six year olds, seven year olds with EOE that have really struggled their entire lives with eosinophilic esophagitis, they can have a Neocate splash at a party and it's not a big deal. Nobody's going to steal it from them because they don't like the way it tastes. But um, it it looks a whole lot more like a Capri Sun than like sure. Alicare Junior Vanilla or whatever yeah. flavors. I've had I've had a lot of kids. Okay, and folks, I know he's he's touched on EOE. I've already um uh, beg borrowed and pleaded, and and we're gonna do a follow up recording specifically on eosinophilic esophagitis because um uh because we need that because the world needs to know that maybe these children are not just um, 
quote unquote, picky and aversive eaters, they're picky and aversive eaters, because it's driven by a true medical etiology. I don't I don't know if you see that as much as I see it on my Monday through Friday. But I get a lot of people that get sent to me because of a diagnosis of picky eating. Yeah. And we get really complacent. And we're like, Oh, it's a behavioral issue or Oh, it's a sensory issue. I've never had a behavioral or a sensory only issue. If we chase that rabbit down the rabbit hole far enough, there's always a medical etiology and it ends up being an allergen or an underlying GI issue. But there's, there's always something you just got to get to the the something. Okay, now, we probably don't have time to delve into it. But I just have a quick question. um, Because it's something that's always plagued my mind. Is there any correlation or risk factors between a child having a milk or soy allergy and then developing celiac later on? Um, I throw you a curveball, but I'm just... Well, the problem with that is that um, there it's two different types of inflammation, and celiac is more of an autoimmune disease than it is a strict allergic disease. Um, people want to be skin tested for celiac like they, like they do with regular allergies. Um, the skin testing elicits an allergic antibody response, okay? And the antibody that is active in celiac disease is not an allergic antibody, so it cannot be elicited through skin testing. So there's all sorts of different types of antibodies that your immune system produces, and the antibody that's active in celiac is an IgA uh, antibody, and the antibodies that are active in allergic disease, eczema, anaphylaxis, hives, things of that nature, that's an IgE antibody. So they're totally different antibodies. So you can't test for celiac. Uh, And celiac is more of an autoimmune disease. So allergic diseases run in packs. If mom has asthma and dad has nasal allergies and eczema, uh, you know, the child is somewhat condemned to develop some of those allergic diseases as well. Um, but if mom and dad don't have any of those problems, but maybe mom has lupus and dad has uh, Sjogren's uh, or, or dad has psoriasis, What's then Sjogren's? sure. Sjogren's is an autoimmune type of arthritis that can involve the eyes and joints and thing, things like that. Uh, so lupus or psoriasis, if you have those in the parents, those are probably better examples. But those are autoimmune diseases. Um, and so celiac is an autoimmune disease. Uh, so milk allergy uh, itself doesn't predispose necessary, necessarily somebody to celiac disease that, that we know of. The other thing, too, about celiac disease is that it's, um, it's underdiagnosed. It, well, actually, I would say this. It's underdiagnosed because people don't go to the gold standard, and the gold standard is intestinal biopsy while you're eating gluten. So you're eating gluten. You're eating gluten. You have to be symptomatic with it. The GI doctor's got to go down there, biopsy the intestines, and see if the diagnostic inflammation is there. Most people don't do that. A lot of people, what they do is they get the blood test, and if it's negative, they say that they're celiacs. They say that they're gluten sensitive. There's actually a term on celiac.org's website, and it says, okay, you've got these real people, and they've got it. Good, celiac. They've got it. And then under this, it says, non-celiac gluten sensitivity disorder and that's what people say say they have if they've had negative blood work and they don't want to do the endoscopy Uh i I asked because i have come across um i've just had a couple of kids that have down syndrome at baseline and then and you know how like you you probably see a trend in your caseload like i'll have a few kids with hirschsprungs and then that'll dissipate and then i'll have a few kids that have like this disease and then that'll dissipate i have had a few children that have had milk allergies we've gone in to rule out and i'm honestly thinking that you know is it milk allergy is it um you know but there's something else going on with the gi tract and when they go and they do the biopsies it also comes back as celiac and so and it's just been i've had three cases within the last couple months and i'm just kind of you know it had me thinking that is a little odd. Um, I know, right? They, um, to, to, to my knowledge, milk allergy does not predispose somebody to uh, to celiac disease. Um, now, there may be something more to that. I'll have to do some research. I, I, immediately, I don't know that that's the case. Well, um, one, when, one, when, 
I will tell you when they have milk out, when they have food allergy and eczema early on in life, they're much more likely to develop uh, rhinitis uh, and asthma. So we call that the atopic march. So when they have eczema and food allergy early on in life, they start growing out of their eczema and their milk allergy and their egg allergy. Uh, and then they start having seasonal runny nose and congestion that starts to go all year long. And then they're having some more wheezing and cough with exertion. They've got abnormal changes in their lung function. And that's the march right there. So they're growing up. They don't have as much eczema and food allergy. Now they have nasal allergies. And, asthma. So, and some kids, some kids now, they just have all four persistently throughout their childhood, which is, uh, I've got several of those patients, unfortunately. So. Bubble babies. I feel like those babies need to be in a bubble. Yeah. Um, no, they need to be on shots, but that's a different story. <laughs> uh, oh my goodness. Okay. All right. I just looked at the time. You and I could, we, we could talk about all the things. Um, uh, please tell the missus, thank you for letting me borrow you for um, 45 minutes to geek out with all the SLPs across the yeah, this is what she's. This is what she's talking about is that this room is like 75 different colors because we're getting ready to paint. <laughs> we're getting ready to paint here. So that's why she was angry because we're getting. She's like, "Oh, you're showing them the bad room," and I was like, oh. yeah, "No, it's fine. I love it. Also, your wife is adorable. She's she's so spunky and brilliant. I just y'all y'all are a great couple, and your kids are sweet too. All right, well, um, folks, we're gonna we're gonna switch over. See, aren't you glad that I pestered him in the church parking lot so we could geek out about all these things? Um, all right, well, let me switch over to our our line, and then we'll take a couple of phone calls. Hold on one minute, and we will, or a couple of seconds, and we'll get there. All right, hang on one second. All right, it's time. We just got done listening to the lovely Dr. Greg Black for the podcast. So we are going to make that oh-so-smooth transition to the pod course. Remember, you can check out this episode as well as all other 17 episodes as well as all the ones that are coming in the future as a continuing education class through speechtherapypd.com. Thanks, hold tight, and enjoy. Hey, can you hear me? I can. I just unmuted myself. Yeah, I um, I, I see. I did see this one question early, so I went ahead um, from Jennifer and I answered that. Okay. All right. So, um, did you message her directly? Uh, the Zoom webinar chat. I just I clicked on the I clicked on the chat icon here. And Perfect. then her, her question was right there. So I just, I just answered it. Perfect. Okay. Well, I'm going to read it aloud. That way the folks that um, are listening can, um, can get it too. Um, Ms. Jennifer asked, how early can a child be referred to have allergy testing? So Dr. Black. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can skin test anybody over the, over the age of 30 days. Um, and, and the issue about that is you have to understand what are you skin testing that baby for? So it's very uncommon that we would get a six week or a, or an eight week old baby in for food allergy testing, but usually around five or six months of age with our patient population, they're manifesting enough symptoms that the parents start to become concerned and as is appropriate for this talk. Um, the, the biggest concern is, are they allergic to milk? Should I switch to soy? What's going on? Uh, and the biggest development in the last couple years, uh, people who have strong family histories of allergy, um, and we've been trying to put the word out there as much as possible, but a lot of people want to get skin tested for peanut under a year of age, um, and when it's negative or when it's ever so slightly inflamed, you can accept a low level of positivity up to a certain point. Um, motivated families want peanut introduced very early on. We assist them with that. Um, and there is a good, there's a, a, a good standing in the literature that early peanut introduction sustains tolerance. So they come in under a year of age, usually wanting to know if they're milk allergic and other families are coming in now because they want to be screened for peanut allergy very early on so that we can assist them in introduction. Okay. So then the second half of her question is personal. And I kind of feel like most of the things that we do were 
positively motivated by our family members. And hers is her eight month old did not tolerate Elmentum powder, but she does well with Elmentum RTF liquid. Um, she doesn't recognize any corn in the RTF. Can she expect corn difficulty as well? And our little one has eczema. So, yeah, um, I don't have a lot of experience with the RTF liquid. Um, and and I, I, part of that is, is that normally the um, pediatricians or the family doctors are the ones putting them on Alimentum or, or, or Nutramagen or something like that. And if, when they see that that's not working out, they, um, they refer them to me. Uh, again, I, I, would, I would question Jennifer how long had her child been on alimentum powder. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. Many patients sort of normalize after three or four weeks, um, but having a, having a miserable child with eczema and loose stool and failure to thrive and, you know, after paying a bunch of money for this one eight ounce can of alimentum and after two weeks, if it doesn't seem to work, I can understand how somebody would want to change. Um, so maybe if the child would have stayed on alimentum powder, it would have been fine. I think that, I think some of that for Jennifer's question goes back to how long the child was actually on alimentum before she switched to the RTF liquid. That's a little hard to assess. Corn is commonly cited by patients as an allergen. Corn is not an allergen. Uh, corn is in a lot of stuff. Corn is not particularly allergenic. The vast majority of people tolerate corn. Um, people believe that they're allergic to it, just like people believe that they're uh, terribly allergic to strawberries. Um, and strawberries are, can cause some nonspecific rash in young children, uh, but strawberries uh, don't represent a, a dangerous allergen, just like corn doesn't represent a dangerous allergen. Um, so we, we have not had problems with that. Um, so there you go. Okay. I have, you said strawberries and it made me think of something. I was doing a feeding therapy session yesterday and I had a golden kiwi for the first time instead of a regular kiwi and my own face broke out. First time that has ever happened in my life. And of course I'm driving my fabulous intern shotgun home from the patient's house and my face is breaking out. My inside of my mouth started getting really red and it all came on really quick and then went away within like 15 minutes. Um, is there when's really, the, when's the last time you've uh, had any contact with latex protein? Um, I don't know a while, but I've never had any issues with latex in the past. But uh, that's what you think. Have you ever had any problems with uh, bananas, chestnuts, stuff like that? No. Not well, I bring that up because reactivity reactivity to kiwi is um, common in latex allergy patients. So forty uh, percent of latex allergic patients have problems with kiwi, banana, chestnut, something like that. We call it the latex fruit syndrome. Now you could be purely reactive to kiwi, and that's just that, or you could be reactive to kiwi as part of a broader latex allergy diagnosis. Uh, although I would imagine occupationally for you, you probably work in a latex-free environment, but maybe not when you started. Um, although I, I think probably by the time you're you're pretty young, so by the time you started working there, your environment was probably latex-free. But there may have been a few things holding over. Hmm, kind of curious. Well, I'll I'll be sure to chow down a banana at breakfast and let you know. I mean, Benadryl's okay. on hand. <laughs> so I, I expect a text early in the morning. Yeah. I, I will. You know, I'm up at 4.30. I will not send it that early. Okay. All right. Sorry. Squirrel. I just, I thought that made me think of my, my fun face explosion yesterday. That was kind of scary for my intern as I was the one driving the giant vehicle. So, okay. A good question that we have um, is, what is the nutritional difference between cow's milk and popular alternatives such as almond milk? And then I want to take that one step farther. I have a little friend that was recommended to go on to coconut milk, which has like next to no calories. So what's the difference between the nutritional value of all of those? Yeah. Um, so the, so the, this is kind of the knife edge that we walk because in reality, cow milk itself is very, very nutritional. It, it doesn't 
have a lot of fat in it. It has lots of protein and the sugars that are in it, specifically lactose, are simple sugars. They're very easy to digest. Um, they're not like your more complex sugars, which are high, higher linked with um, you know, tissue inflammation and obesity and all sorts of other stuff, uh, you know, children that eat uh, high carbohydrate snacks and things of that nature. Um, you know, so cow milk is very nutritious, but when you compare that to almond milk, almond milk is, uh, there's this idea that, oh, it's full of almonds, it's purified almonds, it's so wonderful. Well, usually in an eight ounce glass of almond milk, there's probably no more than two almonds. Uh, and there's a lot of complex sugars that are used as binders to solidify it. Um, and there's very little protein and there's a lot more fat and sugar in almond milk. But then again, if you have a child with eczema and milk allergy and chronic diarrhea and all the things that we've discussed in these last couple podcasts and you switch them over to something like almond milk and they're not having any symptoms, well, great. Uh, that that's the parents feel like okay I've found a good alternative, and and that may be true in the fact that the patient tolerates it. Is it true in the fact that it's the best nutritional option for the patient? Well, a lot of people, uh, a lot of, a lot of nutritionists and dietitians and, and allergists, and we would say we would say no based on that criteria. And the, and that also goes for coconut milk. And, you know, again, these are not milk products they have nothing to do with milk. They're, 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 it's a coconut product. It's an almond product. It's a soy product. Uh, coconut, you know, they, they grate the coconut, they grate the pulp, uh, and they emulsify it and purify water. It's very oily. It's got some fat in it, but you're right. It doesn't have a lot of calories. So the concern here is, is that a lot of times you've got a child with feeding dysfunction, chronic diarrhea, failure to thrive, poor weight gain, all these other allergic symptoms, um, and to switch over to coconut milk, is that going to help them grow? Is that going to calcify their bones? Is that going to be good for their GI tract? Is that going to be good for their central nervous system? You know, with cow milk, if we can get them to tolerate a cow milk-based formula, they'll have better calcification, they'll have better growth, they'll have, it'll be better for their development, cognitively, muscularly, uh, fine motor skills, you know, all those things. And that's why you take these patients. And in the literature, they're doing these experiments, and they've got money. So they can just put the kids on Neocates, they can just put the kids on Elicare for four months or six months, because it's funded by the study. Um, and so when that happens, all of a sudden the, get, the kids get totally better, which is great. But real world application, the first thing everybody talks to you is like, is, hey, doc, I can't afford that. Or, hey, um, I mean, I picked up, I'm basically relying on your samples. My Medicaid won't approve it. My insurance won't approve it. I mean, you need to send in another type of prescription, doc. And, and, and we hear that thing all the time. There's, there's the studies and then there's the real world. I hear that. I hear that all all week long, I can't afford this. Um, I've got one of my cases right now. Um, WIC won't offer gluten-free options in our state, so we're actually working that. Um, regardless of the fact that the kid has horrible celiac disease, like it's it's really like failure to thrive diagnosis. And then once they went over to gluten-free. Um, and changed everything in their environment around. She finally quit vomiting and started gaining weight, but WIC won't cover it and the family can't afford the gluten-free options. So they're stuck between a rock and a hard place and it inhibits how we can food chain out to add more, more food options. But that gets me over to due to the cost of the Neocate and Elementum, um, what can parents do, if anything, to prevent the onset of a milk allergy? Yeah, um, food allergy prevention is, uh, is, is really a hot area of research because, um, you know, an ounce, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So, so the old uh, axiom goes. But, but I didn't know that worked for allergies. This is fascinating to me. Well, you didn't, didn't know what word for allergy? I didn't know you could actually help prevent, like until oh, yeah. I met you, I didn't know that there was a concept such as like a prevention. So this yeah, is- well, that, that harkens back to a couple of different things. And um, 
you know, I, I am going to answer the question, but it'll make sense if I give you a little bit, it'll make better sense if I give you a little bit of history. So back in the 90s, in the 1990s, we st uh, peanut allergy kind of started rearing its ugly head. Milk and egg allergy started becoming more common. And as we started recognizing more cases of peanut allergy, besides the fact that some of these cases were very scary, a handful of them were fatal. So this started ringing some alarm bells in the pediatric community and the allergy community. And based on not a whole lot of evidence, a policy was crafted that typical allergenic foods should have a delayed introduction uh, early on in life. Uh, now, during this time period, um, a few people raised their hands and said, we're not necessarily sure that this is the best policy because we don't really have any evidence that this policy will, will work or will help patients, especially in these difficult situations. Uh, and then as time goes by, it's 10 years later, it's 15 years later, and food allergies are really starting to skyrocket, and we start to look the other way. Uh, there was something called the German Infant Nutritional Initiative that retrospectively started studying a lot of food allergy cases and couldn't find any evidence that early introduction would be helpful. Uh, and we started recognizing that uh, Jewish children in Israel that had early peanut introduction had very little to no peanut allergy over the next five years versus their genetic counterparts, uh, British Jews living under the UK guidelines that peanuts should not be introduced for at least three years. And they had nearly a hundredfold higher diagnoses of peanut allergy. And this is in a genetic, a very genetically similar groups. Um, and, and so then we started saying, well, we probably shot ourselves in the foot here. So we need to start doing early introduction. And um, that led to the LEAP trial. And the LEAP trial is based on this fact that if you're at high risk for food allergy, you usually have eczema early on, early on in life. And if you have eczema and egg allergy, those patients are usually peanut allergic. So skin testing those patients early on for peanut and introducing peanut early under 12 months of age, if it's negative, um, then those patients go on to tolerate peanut, but they have to consume peanut regularly their first five years of life to solidify the tolerance. Now, going back to other methods that can be used to prevent the onset of food allergy, there is some pretty decent evidence for breastfeeding. And you'll find that a lot of your, you know, it, it's one of those things where we're kind of at a point where in your social circle, you may not know anybody who doesn't breastfeed. And yet across the population, I can tell you there's plenty of people out there that once they have that baby, the last thing they want to do is breastfeed. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's an unfortunate choice because breastfeeding up to six months of age can have an exceptionally protective effect and can uh, on their immune systems. It can prevent food allergy and most importantly, it helps develop their gut. And we know that the intestinal microenvironment, the, the, the intestine's ability to process food allergens and the bacterial populations inside that, that those intestines thrive greatly with the mother's breast milk and help teach the immune system how to act right, so to speak. There is some indirect evidence, although it's not particularly strong, so there's not a lot of great recommendations on this, but there is a couple of studies that show that if you're breastfeeding and you're avoiding milk, egg, and peanut in your diet up to six months of age, that if the mother's avoiding food allergens and she's breastfeeding, that that may give the baby some extra protection. Another thing that we've seen is that if you decide you're not going to breastfeed as a mother. Um, if the baby is high risk in that the baby already has eczema or there, there's a strong family history of eczema and there's a strong family history of food allergy and all those things, you know, some person may not say, oh, I've got a high risk baby, even though the mom's got eczema and they've got a history of food allergy. But if that mother decides that she's not going to breastfeed, it would be better for the baby to go on Nutramagen immediately. It would, or it would be better for the baby to go on Neocate immediately. And again, there's evidence for that preventing food allergy too. But those are the studies. Real world application, somebody that you never know, that you've never met, 
you know, as their friendly neighborhood allergist, I wouldn't swing into their house and say, hey, I know you've got eczema and your husband's got peanut allergy. Uh, that new baby you don't want to breastfeed. Uh, here's some Neocade. And so that how to get the word out and how to apply that from a population standpoint is, is the real problem. Okay. I'm just imagining you driving up to people's houses handing out Neocade because... <laughs> oh, I would be like Neocade Santa Claus. I know. But I mean, yeah, you'd have to be a millionaire to do that. Okay, so all right, we had we had a question that we have to answer. Um, Miss Sarah posted, "If a breastfed baby, a speech pathologist cannot talk at the end of the day, Greg. It's it's a occupational hazard. Um, if a breastfed baby has food allergies that were originally discovered due to GI issues, is it okay for mom to consume those foods? Would it be good for the baby to get that little bit through the breast milk to help with the allergens?" And then she asked it, asked if a baby has a positive skin and blood test to peanuts, can mom consume peanuts if the baby is slowly exposed to it since it's ideal to introduce peanuts early on? Um, it is ideal to introduce peanut early on. Um, you know, but here's the thing about that. It, it depends on the skin test itself. So you need to speak with your allergist directly about that because under 12 months of age, a very low level of positivity is acceptable for introduction. So whether the mom's eating peanut while she's breastfeeding or not, if the skin test is negative, as soon as the baby can actually process peanut orally, you know, a good way to get around this is to take um, two or three teaspoons of peanut butter and mix them with two ounces of warm water and create a peanut butter slurry because maybe a four or five month old can't really gum down uh, peanut butter, peanut, just actual peanut butter. And that's fine. But you can make up a peanut butter slurry and then, and then they and then they can eat it and they'll do just great. Um, whether mom's eating peanut or not. If they have a peanut skin test that is under that threshold between four to six months of age, I'm going to want them. I'm going to want the child to introduce peanut. Um, that being said, they're, they're, so if I can make that happen, then that's what I would prefer, and that would be better for the child. So then mom doesn't, since the baby, since the baby would be eating peanut directly, mom doesn't have to worry about what's in her diet and what she's breastfeeding, yada, yada, because the, the baby would be getting it directly. As far as, avoid, as, as far as avoidance of certain food allergens based on GI symptoms alone, that, that's a little bit more difficult to answer uh, because you, we have to look at the baby's symptoms and you'd have to say, what, are, what is the baby eating and what is the correlation with the symptoms? If the mother is purely breastfeeding and the baby's having lots of diarrhea, and that's the GI symptom, uh, and then there's stool in the baby, sorry, and there's blood in the baby's stool, well, that's a classic case of allergic proctitis, which basically means that the baby cannot handle the cow milk allergens in mother's breast milk. So mother has to avoid milk and soy based on those pure GI symptoms and based on the blood. But that's not a conventionally allergic syndrome. What, what happens there is that mom avoids milk and soy. Mom, avo mom avoids milk and soy. Mom continues to breastfeed. The baby's stools thicken up. The baby gets a lot better. And then an overwhelming majority of those patients at 12 months of age successfully introduce cow milk into their diet. Um, and the, I bring that up because allergists don't even see those patients for the most part because pediatricians are so versed at that, mm -hmm. that they could, um, that they could see that. Now, if mother's avoiding milk and soy in her diet and the baby is continuing to have GI symptoms, um, you could consider doing some skin testing, but that that would be it's hard to know what mom could what else mom could remove on a reliable basis that that would be helpful so that that's a great question but that's really it has that would have to be sort of customized case to case there's not a i hope that's helpful i i had a very a more concise more to the point peanut answer but um for the gi stuff it, it if you're if the mother is eliminating milk and soy 
and the patient doesn't improve from a GI standpoint, then you might have to employ more aggressive measures in skin testing and, and go case by case. And, and Sarah, for what it's worth, a lot of the kiddos that I see that mom avoids and the kiddos are a little bit older, like closing in or nine and 10 months, what I've noticed is that a lot of times those kids also tend to have other illnesses, chronic ear infections, um, upper respiratory stuff, and they get put on a lot of antibiotics. And one thing that I was not taught in grad school that has been trial by fire is all those antibiotics, um, especially ceftonir, can cause um, stool to turn red. It's one of the side effects of it. Um, there's a really good book out, Drugs and Dysphagia, um, by Carl Johnson, and he has a second one out um, that just got published within the last year. It was written by an SLP, an OT, and a pharmacist, and it's literally all about how medicines can induce dysphagia and it, from birth to end-of-life care, and they spend a significant amount of time talking about antibiotics, seizure medications, um, impacting uh, GI tract. So for what it's worth to go to follow the poo all the way through, I would check out those two resources um, and have that conversation as well. So, hmm. I actually failed at the septonier thing, Greg. I didn't know that the side effect would turn stool red and I thought goose was bleeding internally. <laughs> so like, that, um, that, yeah, that, that can be scary. Um, that has not happened with us. I did know about that side effect when uh, one of my children had to go on, on ceftonir. And, and I probably prescribed ceftonir for sinus infections a couple of times a month. Um, so most people get out of it without having that side effect, but I, I still make them aware of that. Um, yeah. There's another, there's another uh, drug called rifampin, and it's an antibiotic, and it can do the same thing. But um, yeah, that is that is you know, and going back to the antibiotics, um, they they kill the good gut bacteria, mm -hmm. and we have good evidence now that it can take sometimes several months, if not a, a few years, for the good bacteria to return to the patient's gut. So it's not something where they're done with the antibiotics for two weeks. And everything's fine again. Um, the the changes that it lays down on a on a child's intestines um, can be in play months to years after they finish that one course of antibiotics, uh, which is why you see a lot of pediatricians and a lot of family medicine doctors and even people in my situation. Uh, they come in. The child's got an illness. I usually think it's viral. I I. I pretty much always hesitate to prescribe an antibiotic unless they've been persistently ill for more than seven days. If they're ill for seven days or more and they're getting worse, it's reasonable to give the child an antibiotic. But if they've been sick for two or three days and their symptoms aren't typically severe, I pretty much never give them an antibiotic. And it's because, it's because we, we've just learned so much. But when we were growing up in the 80s, if we were sick, it was like, bam, we got an antibiotic, you know? Uh the pink bubblegum amoxicillin, dude. It's amazing I survived my childhood as many times as I was on that. So, yes. uh, okay. All right. My, my grandfather clock is about to ding and remind me that we have exacerbated our time allotment, but we do that and I am grateful for it. Um, there she goes. There's my ding. Um, Greg, we seriously have to sit down and get through life's crazies and peg out time to do the EOE one. I'm just saying. Yeah, I just, um, I'm, you know what I might have to do? I, I just might have to, we might, I know this sounds weird. January is a, usually a very chill time uh, for me um, um, after after the college football season is over. So, uh, <laughs> and I, I just, just uh, put putting part of my personal life out there, but, um, yeah, right. let me, I, I don't, I don't think I could do it anytime in the next month or so, but let me, I, I hear you. Um, and I, okay. I, I told you I could do that originally. So I'm pumping the brakes on it for the second, but I, I'll, I'll still be able to do it for you. I'll, we just need to plan it out. All right. I'm, I'm penciling you in for the month of January. How about that? Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. okay. All right, everybody, y'all heard it. 
Greg in January, EOE. <laughs> All right. In the immediate future, um, next Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we have um, the lovely Melissa Montiel uh, back. She's coming back for round two. It's called VPI. It's more than nasal emissions. It can impact swallowing, too. And that will occur again, same time, same place, same location, 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. And that's Melissa Montiel from the Medical University of South Carolina and the Evelyn Chamel Institute for Voice and Swallowing. As always, you can find us at First Bite, uh, Fed Fun Functional. We're on Facebook. You can email us, firstbite at speechtherapypd.com. Um, you can follow us on Instagram. Um, I am at Heartwood Speech, uh, or is it at Heartwood Speech Therapy? I'm a terrible business owner. I don't remember as y'all are all sitting there um, laughing. And then we also have at speechtherapypd.com. So Greg, as always, thank you so very, very much for coming. And, it's my pleasure. My uh, pleasure. Thank will, you for having me. Uh, oh, uh, thank you. Yes. And um, we'll uh, talk soon. And folks, thanks for listening in and I will see y'all next Tuesday. Everybody, um, be safe in the hurricane, Greg. It's coming. On oh, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, 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 I think it's supposed to be past us by the time we're supposed to go to the beach this weekend. So we're going to okay. keep our fingers crossed and just go late on Friday, I think. Okay. Well, y'all be safe and everybody, if you're in its path, be safe and know we're thinking about you. All right. So on that note, have a good night, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Mm -hmm.